Please pray with me. Father above, I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to your word. Lord, make us attentive to you. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. This is the last of the Sundays when the epistle readings are from 1 Thessalonians, and so this is the last Sunday, at least for a while, that you will hear us talking about 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be in chapter 5 this particular Sunday. I like chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians because it's the chance to pop the bubble. To pop the bubble that is, what is the shortest verse in the Bible? What is it? Jesus wept. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice always. You're like, wait, that's also two words. And actually in Greek, it's fewer letters. The actual shortest verse in the Bible. I find it very intriguing that the two shortest verses in the Bible are Jesus weeping for us and our call to rejoice in him. In the providence of the Holy Spirit, whoever gave the chapters and the numbers to the New Testament, something beautiful happened, something stunning. We're not actually going to be talking about that, though. We're going to talk about the first 10 verses of this chapter. Read them again with me. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers... You have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. All of the passages today have elements of something frightening in them. Judgment. And it's one of those themes that we don't often talk about and don't always want to talk about. But from time to time, we actually need to look Head on. Paul refers to a concept that would have been very familiar to the Jewish part of the Thessalonian church. The concept of the day of the Lord. The concept of the day of the Lord is all over the prophets. And that concept includes two very specific elements. There is this day coming when the Lord arrives. And in that moment, two things happen. The first is that there will be judgment upon all that is evil on all those who are opposed to God. And the second aspect of the day of the Lord is in that moment that will be deliverance and restoration for all those who honor and follow God. Judgment on evil and deliverance and restoration for all those who honor and follow God. 
You hear those two elements together in many of the prophetic passages about the day of the Lord. But let me offer you just one. From the end of Malachi, Malachi 4, it says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. That day is coming, and it shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Judgment on evil. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go leaping like calves from the stall. These two things combine together, judgment on all that is evil, in restoration, deliverance, healing, salvation on those who follow God. Our culture is uncomfortable with the idea of judgment. And there's certainly been times when the church has been guilty of overemphasizing this note, talking about it more than we talk about God's love and forgiveness and willingness to have mercy on the most outstanding sins. Certainly times when our culture has rightly reacted to a church who talks judgment, judgment, judgment over and over. But just because the church has erred in that direction doesn't mean we should avoid it when the Bible speaks about it clearly. The biblical witness is clear. God actually won't allow evil to go on forever. Jesus will return as judge. By the way, that's actually good news, that God won't allow evil to go on forever. Jesus will return as judge. His patience is remarkable. He allows hundreds, thousands of years to go by so that civilizations, whole generations, families, individuals have a chance to repent. He allows so much time and patience so that people might turn back to him. And when even a handful of them do, he's willing to allow even more time, time and time and time. You remember the passage where Abraham pleads for Sodom. Just if a few people are found, and God says, just a few, and I would give them more time. Hundreds and thousands of years of patience so that people would have a chance to turn back. But his patience should never be understood as a tolerance for evil, a tolerance for wickedness. Because the Bible is clear that there will come a time when Jesus will return, and it's called the day of the Lord. And he will return as judge to eradicate all that's evil. In the end, everything that is opposed to him will be burnt away. In that day, all those who are Jesus' own will be saved. All those who are his own will be delivered. All those who are his own will be healed. And that's not just good and worthy people. This is important for us to come to terms with. It's not just everybody who thinks that they're a good person. In fact, the people who think that they're a good person may be the people on the outside. The people who will be delivered and healed are simply those who have cried to him for mercy. Those who have turned to him in desperation for salvation, who say, I know that I cannot do it for myself. Those who are healed and delivered and saved are those who have thrown their lot in with him who've said, I'll let you be my Lord and I will follow you. I'll confess my sins and quit living in lies before you. I'll be named by your name, be included in your family. Those who are included in his family are not those who are necessarily good. 
They are people like you and me who in faith and repentance seek to follow God clumsily at best, stumbling over and over. But the point is they're people who've said yes to Jesus, who've thrown their lot in with this coming judge rather than those who have opposed him and said, I don't want anything to do with you. But there will come a time when the evil that is patiently allowed while God waits for more to come into his family is eradicated. And the Bible calls that the day of the Lord. It's actually interesting if you read Paul's sermons in Acts, particularly during the missionary journey where he planted the Thessalonican church, he comes back to this idea multiple times. He tells the people of multiple cities that God has allowed you to walk in your ways for a period of time, but there is a time of repentance, and that time is now. The urgency Paul felt in that preaching was because the judge of all had been unveiled. This is what he tells the people at Athens right after he left Thessalonica. The judge of all has been unveiled by the resurrection of the dead and the resurrection of Jesus and Paul's eyes being opened to who the judge was created an urgency that he took to people saying, God has allowed you to live in ignorance up to now. He set times and seasons for your nations and your lives and allowed you to stumble and grope and find your way towards him. But the time is now to turn because we know who the judge is. There was an urgency in his preaching on this missionary journey around this very topic. You can't claim ignorance anymore. Throw in your lot with the coming king. Throw in your lot with the Lord Jesus. Throw in your lot with this one who, when he arrives, will bring both healing and judgment. The eradication of evil, but the healing of all who claim him. The Thessalonians had obviously asked Paul, when will this day come? And it's interesting that in his response, he basically says, you don't need me to tell you the answer to that question. I already told you. You don't need me to answer that. When will he come? And Paul says, remember, I told you, he'll come like a thief in the night. No one will expect it. People will be saying, all is well with the world, peace and security. And in that moment, like a thief in the night, it will happen so unexpectedly, and people will be left robbed, empty-handed. But Paul wants to be very clear to the Thessalonians, and here we can look at verse 4, that even though that will be sudden, for the Thessalonians, it will not be like a thief in the night. Even though it will be sudden in its timing, it will not rob them clean, in other words, they won't be caught off guard. And his point, the point that he makes very simply, is that you are ready. How do I know that you are ready? Because you're no longer in the dark. You're children of light. You're not going to be surprised because you're not in the dark anymore. Paul's introducing in this passage three metaphors that are used throughout the New Testament to describe this scenario, the day of the Lord coming, what it means to not be ready or to be ready. And there are three metaphors that we have straight from Jesus himself. He uses them, and Paul picks them up and uses them a number of times. And those three metaphors are the idea of darkness and light, of being awake or being asleep, of being drunk or being sober. And those three images are used a number of times to talk about this very moment when the judge returns, to be in the dark is to be blind. 
is to be ignorant of God. It's to call good evil and evil good. It's to be unaware of the things that God actually wants. It's to think that we know when we don't. To think that we have wisdom and knowledge and understanding when our minds are all skewed about what matters and who matters. That's being in the dark. To be asleep points to inattentiveness, a lack of concern or a lack of care for the things that ultimately matter. Truth, God, his righteousness, his goodness, his mercy. To be drunk points to indulgence, a lack of self-control, the sort of disoriented stumbling of one whose senses have been so indulged that there's no true judgment left in them. That metaphor obviously includes physical drunkenness, but it's so much bigger than that in the New Testament. It's anything that clouds judgment, any sort of self-indulgent pursuit so that one can't think rightly about God and the world. Honestly, if you were to speak fairly about the world that we live in, the thing that clouds our senses more than anything else is probably our materialism. The sense that we believe that we can fix anything with another pleasure or another purchase. Clouds our understanding of what's right and wrong, disoriented, stumbling in the dark. The description that Paul's offering of the world is that the world is in the dark. That it's asleep. That it's drunk. It ignores God. It calls evil good and good evil. It celebrates things that just don't matter at best and are actually wrong at worst. It thinks that it's wise. It's puffed up with its own ability to solve every issue and understand every situation. But it ignores truth. It ignores what God desires. It ignores what is right. It rejects the only thing that counts in the end. It's indulgent and confused, foolish and depraved. And Paul says, in that state, in that state of confusion and disorientation and dishonesty, where good is called evil and evil good, in that state, the day of the Lord will be a terror, like a thief in the night. The blinding light of his judgment and presence being unveiled on that sort of people in that moment when everything that humanity is devoting itself to will suddenly be seen for what it is, ashes falling through people's fingers, nothing left of substance. All that people who have poured out their time and their energy and their lives to revealed as emptiness and depravity. In that state, the blinding light of the Lord's judgment will be like a thief unexpectedly robbing people of everything that they thought that they had. All the success and the power and the glory that the world had been bestowed upon people in its emptiness, nothingness, left behind. But Paul's claim is that those who have been claimed by Jesus as his own, those who are named by him, those who are called by him and a part of his family, are now not children of the dark. They are now not children of sleep. They are now not children of drunkenness because they have been woken up. His point is that the light has already flooded their lives. They've been sobered up to use this imagery. They've been woken up and truth is now known. 
Self-control is actually offered, actually on the table. Wisdom and true judgment are actually available. Good is seen for what it is, good. Evil is seen for what it is, evil. All this means that life can now be oriented rightly, and life can now be oriented rightly because things have been seen for what they are, and so repentance can actually be undertaken. Faith can actually be exercised. Because this has already taken place, because they've been raised into the light, the children of God, because they've actually been given the Spirit so that they can live in the light, so that they can live awake and sober and attentive and alert to God, because they can live with lives rightly oriented, focused towards God, because of that, the day of the arrival of Jesus, the day of the Lord is no longer a threat. That's why Paul says that it will not overtake you. The day is no longer a threat. That day is now a joy. And not only a joy, but actually, and this is coming from verse 9, it is actually the moment of deliverance, the moment of salvation, the moment when every chain is broken. Because you remember that eradication of evil includes the eradication of all that's left of evil in us. And those lives that are rightly oriented towards God, staring at him, all that is stubble burnt away at the end. And the children of God left in rejoicing because nothing left that hurts and harms and drags us away. That's the picture that he's offering to the church. There's a problem here, though. And the problem is very simply that each of us is still drawn to the darkness. Each of us is still drawn to the world's inattentiveness to God. Each of us is still affected and drawn to the world's confusion and disorientation. We might say the right things about God. We might say the right things about truth, about righteousness. But when we examine what we actually pursue day in and day out with our time, with our money, with our emotional longings, when we examine what we're constantly thinking about, what we're attentive to moment by moment of every day, when we acknowledge how truthfully we're actually drawn to things that fundamentally don't matter or are even actually harmful to us, when we notice our own propensity to justify ourselves, to cloud the truth, to hide behind a smokescreen, to live away from the light, when we examine ourselves in that way, all of us have to acknowledge that we find it is very easy to be drawn back into the dark. It is very easy to live with a life that is oriented day in and day out to anything other than God. It is very easy to live in the midst of the world's confusion, valuing things that we have to acknowledge don't actually matter, believing things that are not actually true. This call, the call to alertness, the call is to alertness, the call is to a life of profound attentiveness to the presence of God every moment. The call is to a life that's being reshaped at every second by the truth so that every habit, pattern, and even our feelings are transformed over time. This call is to be 
discarding things that distract us and entangle us, and to live constantly oriented towards God. I kept thinking of the image of a flower turning to face the sun at every moment. No matter what occurs, it turns to face the sun. A life like that towards God, that's the call to us. And yet, we are oriented towards him. We trust his word. We focus on him such a small portion of our time. We're so easily inundated with the flood of the world. And this is why Paul has to say to a church that he's already said, I'm not worried about you. You're children of the light. And yet he has to remind them multiple times in this passage, yet stay awake, stay awake, stay sober, stay awake. Multiple times in this passage, he has to remind them because we who are children of the light have to be reminded to live like it because we're so easily pulled back into the disorientation in the darkness. Our values are so easily distorted and twisted. It's like we're swimming upstream in the flooding river and everything that the world believes and values is sweeping us away with it. And fighting to hold on to what we know is truth sometimes seems just like so much effort. So much effort. If you were to say, how in the world do I stay oriented towards God? Do I stay alert? Do I stay awake? How in the world do I keep my senses straight? Paul says in verse 8, three things that I think we need to hang on to. Look at it. In verse 8, he says, since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Our alertness, our sobriety, our understanding the truth and focusing on God in that verse is described in faith, hope, and love. It's like he's saying, are you being pulled under by the values of the world? Do you find yourself changing so that you become what you know you ought not be? Strap faith more tightly on. Claim Jesus as your Lord. Cling to him. Let his word be everything that matters. If he says it, I give up everything for it. Throw your life in his hands. If you feel yourself going under, strap faith more tightly on. If you feel yourself being swept away by the world's indulgence and sense that if you serve yourself, life will work, strap love more tightly on. Recognize that you were given your life to give it away. You were not given your life so that you could actually spend it on yourself. You were given it to give away. Strap love more tightly on. Find that person that is so difficult to love and begin to pray for them. Find that person that it's impossible to have patience with and take a small step towards exercising patience. It's like he's saying, if you find yourself swept away by the world's cynicism and hopelessness, strap hope more tightly on. These three are your armor. Recognize that Jesus is victor. Cling to that. Strap that armor more tightly. If you say, how do I swim upstream in this world? The answer he offers is faith, hope, and love. Cling to them. Strap them on more tightly. This is what it means to be alert, to live awake, to be in the light. Of course, we all know that there are times when those things are very difficult when faith seems like an impossibility. There are times when love seems like an impossibility to certain people that are too difficult to love. 
Times when hope seems to be empty, like it will never actually come true. And there's times when the weight of that flooding river seems like it'll just take us away and we want to give up and go, why does it even matter? Why does it even matter? Paul concludes this with a reminder that I think we need to hear. And it's in verse 10. He reminds us of the Lord Jesus who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. That we might live with him. That is the Lord's desire. That he might live with you. That your life would be with him. If y'all are like me, there are times when you begin to wonder whether the Lord regards you at all. Where you wonder whether he is distant and inattentive and cares. We all experience those doubts. That he might live with you. That is his desire. Your life is so precious to him that he was willing to die for that. The call to stand in faith and hope and love does not come from one who is disinterested. It does not come from one who is a harsh taskmaster who stands at a distance and says, come on, work harder. The call to faith and hope and love comes from one who looks at you and says, your life was as precious to me as my own, and I willingly would offer mine for yours. So in the moments when the flood seems stronger than you, and you say, why am I even trying this anymore? Remember that one who died for you longs to live with you. Amen.